Well, hello, my good friends, and welcome. We're alongside the St. John River here today, and it is an absolute privilege and pleasure to be able to study God's Word together. And I was thinking about how profound that is this week. This is God's Word. Like, God wrote this. God said this. And we get to open it up and study it. And I, for one, am a firm believer that when we approach God's Word with an open heart and an open mind, and we're ready to seek Him and listen, He speaks to us through His Word. Now, sometimes we can approach God's Word like it's beneath us, like we're over it. And when we do this, it's like we're trying to shape it to fit our lives and our desires and our wishes and maybe even to like justify our sin. And that's a wrong approach, friends, because in reality, it's like this. The scriptures are over us. God's word is our highest authority and we are to hold it in the highest regard. And today, we are starting a new series where we're going to go through God's Word, specifically the book of Colossians. And we're going to be spending a bunch of weeks on this, going through Colossians verse by verse. And uh, that's pretty much it. There's no gimmicks. It's just the Scriptures. And what we're going to see in Colossians is the centrality of Christ. And the centrality of Christ is not some religious platitude or some flowery thing we just throw around. It is quite literally the life we've been called to as believers. And as we go through Colossians, we're not only going to marvel at how amazing Jesus is, but we're going to see a number of ways that we can practically center ourselves on him. So let's grab our Bibles. Let's turn to Colossians chapter one. We're going to go through the first eight verses today. And as you're finding that, I want to just tell you, I am really, really excited to do this with you. I've been wanting to do this book probably for two years and now is the time. So we're excited. And today we're going to establish some context that's going to help us uh, get, uh, understand the rest of the book better. And again, I'm really excited because we're not reading this to try to get it to shape around the lives we're currently living. Uh, my heart here is that we would read God's Word so that it can shape us. So let's get into it. Let's read the first three verses. It starts out by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So, let's rip into this. The first uh, opening words of this text tell us about who the author is. It says, Paul. And if you're new and you don't know what the deal is with Paul, he was a very significant figure in the New Testament. He wrote 13, possibly 14 books of the 27 New Testament books. And you would uh, speak up and say, that sounds like about half. Ding, ding, you're a winner. Paul had a pretty dramatic story. Earlier in his life, he was actually a violent persecutor and opponent of the church and against Jesus altogether. But then he actually met Jesus and he had a pretty wild conversion experience and it totally transformed him. So where he was an opponent at first, all of a sudden now Paul's uh, life and heartbeat is to serve and worship Jesus and, and work uh, in service to the church. So you want to talk about a turnaround, that's Paul for you. And it says here about Paul that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That word apostle, let's just camp out on that for a second. The apostles were key players in the development of the early church. These guys were hand-selected by Jesus 
Um, they themselves obviously were witnesses to Jesus and they worked in the power of the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel and to plant churches and to lead. And Paul, if you read his account, he did all of these things in abundance. It was the calling God put on his life. Like it says in the text, this was God's will for him. We're going to talk about God's will next week. I'm looking forward to that. And one of the traits of apostleship, which you'll kind of see uh, in this text a little bit, is an interest in a sort of wider network of churches, not just a focus on maybe one church. Now, there's nothing wrong with just focusing on one church. That's pretty much what I do. Um, but kind of the nature of an apostle is, again, they've got that scope that is wider and they're concerned with more of the bigger picture. Church is rather than just one church. And it's believed that when Paul was writing this letter to the Colossians, he had actually never even been to Colossae. And therefore, he's probably not the one that planted this church. But even still, he's got an apostolic heart for them. He's got a pastoral heart for them and a brotherly affection for them. Uh, and he writes this letter to them out of genuine concern for their well-being and their growth in the faith. That's why I titled this section, The Ministry of Paul. Ministry is simply work that is being done in service to the Lord. And oftentimes it benefits others. Now it also says that Timothy, our brother, is involved in writing this letter, or is at least with Paul during the process. And Timothy was a younger believer. Uh, he was a pastor and a preacher, and he worked closely with Paul. Paul was sort of a mentor. Uh, to Timothy. So here they are, they're partnering for the sake of the gospel. It's multi-generational. It's not a one-man show. In fact, it's not a show at all. It's believers, and notice the plural there, believers working together for the sake of the king and his kingdom. And we're going to talk about that in a number of weeks uh, near the end of this series. Verse 2, it says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So that gives us a clue of who this letter was written to. It's written to Christians people who belong to the household of God. It's written to faithful brothers in Christ who lived in the city of Colossae. Now, the city of Colossae was a Roman city in the western part of the country that's now Turkey. And if you were to travel there now, you would find that it's mostly a tourist attraction. Formerly, so this, this book of Colossians was written in the first century AD, about the 60s AD. And before that time, Colossae had been a somewhat significant, influential city. But by the time this book was written, it had kind of lost some of its status. It really wasn't the happening place in the region anymore. Other cities, towns had kind of surpassed it in influence. And that got me thinking. I don't mean this in a negative way at all, or like I'm bashing or something like that. That's a little bit kind of reminiscent of the history of our city. Anyway, so it's recorded that Colossae was a city where there was a decent amount of pagan worship happening. In fact, it's recorded that there may have been an angel worshiping cult there. So it was far from a place where everybody was devout, righteous, belonged to Jesus. There was some other stuff going on. Yet there was a church there. There was a genuine community of believers who Paul was writing to, to strengthen and encourage them. And it's believed that the church in Colossae was made up of mostly Gentile, that is non-Jewish Christians. Uh, Although there likely were some Jewish Christians there as well. This is uh, reflective of the population demographics that were present in the area at that time. Now as for why this book was written, 
It's believed Colossians was written because there was a dangerous false teaching that was beginning to spread through the church. And obviously false teaching can be very damaging and destructive and lead people off the right path and onto a wrong one. So a guy like Paul, again, who hasn't even been there before, but has this pastoral and apostolic heart and concern for them, he writes them this letter to combat against the spread of false teaching. And we'll get more into the specifics about what that false teaching may have been in the coming weeks. But to summarize, it likely had to do with people people being told that in addition to Jesus, there was sort of more that you had to strive for. Jesus wasn't enough. You needed to do certain rituals or uh, look to certain places in order to experience a higher level of spirituality. And we kind of see this stuff sometimes today. Uh, there are things like new ageism or even just in general spirituality. We're told different things like in order to have a spiritual experience, you have to look within yourself. Um, or you need to look to mother nature or the universe or you need to seek positive energy and so on and we as Christians we reject all of those stances and what you're gonna see in this letter is that Paul focuses and focuses hard on the actual source of our spiritual actualization the actual source of our experiencing the presence and the power of God in this life our actual spiritual awakening the actual source of our hope and the actual object of our worship and his name is Jesus Christ we don't have to go anywhere or look for or experience anything else. Jesus is it. In Christ, there is abundant life. There is freedom. There is purpose. There is friendship with God and closeness to God. And there is hope for eternity. So friends, Jesus is the spiritual experience that we are called to have. The text continues, it says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is a pretty common intro in some of Paul's writing, uh, but it's a great one. I love that he starts with this. Of all the things that Paul could have said to get things kicked off, this is where he begins. Grace to you. So I want you to just understand, let's pause on that for a minute. If you're watching this or listening to this, whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever your life is like, whatever kind of things are going on, whatever your background is uh, with regard to the faith, God has grace for you. He has grace for you. God loves you. He made you. He wants a relationship with you. And, and we as believers, we are people who are already partakers in God's amazing grace. And I would say if you're not a Christian, that in invitation is there from God. You could become one and you could share in this grace as well. Now it says peace here as well, grace to you and peace. So as believers, we are a people who have peace with God. We are positionally at peace with Him. That is our position, our status with Him in Christ. And it's awesome. We are no longer enemies of God, but friends. We are no longer orphans, but we are sons and daughters of the King. There is no longer a dividing wall of hostility between us. There is no longer hostility, but peace which is awesome. But this actually is specifically a declaration of peace from God. We are not only positionally at peace with God, but God actually gives us, as believers, He actually gives us His peace in real time exactly when we need it, which is wonderful. And I know some of you guys can testify to that. At any rate, grace and peace is the offer we are extended as we open up this letter. And that's really good news because if you're anything like me, you need more grace and you want more peace in your life. Amen? Verse 3. 
it says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So again, you can see some of that apostolic pastoral heart coming through from Paul. He says, when we pray for you. And I want you to know as a sidebar, if you are part of the Harbor family, your leaders pray for you. Your leaders pray for you. I just wanted you to know that. But back to Paul, in his prayers uh, for the Colossians, there's thanksgiving to God. We'll read about why in a minute. I want you to just take notice before we move on, though, that Paul emphasizes here about the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to see all the way through this book, here's just one example, where Paul really strongly emphasizes who Jesus is. He is not some peripheral figure. He is not someone on the outside or someone that we should just think about every once in a while. Jesus is a central figure in our faith. In fact, he is the central figure. So that's a little bit of background on the Apostle Paul's involvement with this church in Colossae and his heart for them and his ministry to them. Now we're going to continue in the text and we're going to see a different element of ministry that's going on. And it's the ministry of the gospel. So let's keep reading from verses 4 to 6 here. It says... Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth." So let's just start on verse 4 there. It says, uh, remember verse 3, it said, uh, we give thanks to God when we pray for you. Verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. So first notice that term faith. This is not faith in just anyone or just anything. This is not faith in some higher power. This is not some generic faith in God or some loose belief that there maybe is a God. This isn't faith in yourself, certainly, or your stuff or your abilities or your cleverness or your resources. It says here, this is faith in Christ Jesus. So for the Colossians and indeed for us, he is the object of their faith. He is the reason for their faith. It says in Hebrews 12 that Jesus is the pioneer or the founder and perfecter of our faith. He is central, my friends. Notice also the term love here. You'll see that this isn't just some generic love. This certainly isn't some feeling. Like how often we equate love to just a feeling and it's foolish. This isn't love for yourself or for your stuff. It specifies right here. This specifies about love for all the saints. That's talking about other Christians, other believers. What I want you to see, friends, is that love, faith, sorry, in Jesus Christ leads to love for others. Faith in Christ leads to love for others. That's one way you can tell that your faith is, quote, working properly. If you say, I'm a believer in Jesus, and oh my word, he's just changing things in my life, and I'm finding that I'm just loving people better, that's a sign you might be on the right track. And conversely, if you say, yes, I'm a strong believer and follower of Jesus, but you're unloving and remaining unloving, you might want to have a second look at that. Now, yes, the Bible does tell us about loving all people, but what it shows here is that there is a special emphasis, an extra emphasis, on how we are to love other believers in an extra, extra special way. And what this tells us is that there are benefits and there are blessings from being part of a body of Christ, a church. And if you're not, you should be. 
And I know that things are a little different right now with COVID and stuff, but when that all starts to get under control, I want to invite and encourage you to come and participate in the life of the church. Uh, there will be lots of opportunities for you to meet people and get plugged in and to grow in your faith. So consider yourself invited and informed about that. Let's move on. Verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So notice that word hope. To hope is to long for with expectation. It's to look forward to something. It's to live your life in a certain way because you know something good is coming. And the words in here, because of, are really important. This is saying the reason these Christians have such strong faith in Christ and the reason they have such love for one another is because they have hope. Hope changes the way we live. And yes, while it anticipates something that hasn't happened or arrived yet, it's looking at something that's coming down the pipe, down the road, it affects us in the here and now. Hope encourages us through the dark night of the soul. It encourages us and gets us through difficult seasons. It changes our perspective. So I'll give you just a simple, silly little example. If you were going on a vacation, you decided you were gonna go on a trip somewhere, you would have to imagine that because we're not really allowed to go anywhere right now, but just picture with me, if you can remember what that's like, you first, decide you're gonna go on this trip. The, the whole experience doesn't begin when your plane touches down wherever you're going. It begins when you whip out the credit card, which is usually the less fun part, and you pay for your flight and your hotel and your maybe your rental car or whatever else you're doing. And as time goes on, you're gonna to start to do other things. You're gonna maybe go to the bank and get money out. Uh, and the exchange rate if you're going to the States, as always, is probably terrible. And uh, as time goes on, you're gonna start talking about it to other people because you're getting excited. Hopefully you're not being annoying to them. And then as time gets even closer, you're gonna pack your suitcase and men, testify to this with me. You're packing your suitcase the night before or the morning of, amen? And then you're gonna get up probably super early and go to the airport and wait around for your flight and you're gonna endure the day of flying to get wherever you're going. And then you're gonna land and then the fun's really gonna start. But like I'm saying, that whole experience doesn't begin when you land, it's at the beginning when you're looking forward to it. That's just a simple example, but hope kind of works the same way uh, in our faith as well. And this hope that they're talking about in Colossians 1.5, it is not just some generic old hope. It is not hope that one day you'll meet somebody, or one day you'll be happy, or one day you'll have enough money to be comfortable, or one day you can trust in your retirement or get to retire. The hope that's specified here is the hope laid up for you in heaven. This is hope that comes from knowing that this life is not all that there is. This is hope that when this life is over, those of us who believe in and belong to Jesus will go to be with him and see him face to face and be in the fullness of God's presence for all eternity. Can you imagine? And it just so happens that when we're there, we'll be free from all the cares, all the pains, all the longings, all the sufferings of this world. What a day that will be. That is the hope that is laid up for us in heaven, brothers and sisters. And that changes the way we live in the here and now. The text continues, of this, of this hope, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So here we go. The origin of all of these qualities, the faith and the love and the hope that these guys had, the origin of those qualities is the gospel. And we've just come out of a series on the gospel, so you should all be experts on it by now. The gospel is the good news. 
or as the text would say here, it's the word of truth about Jesus Christ. Excuse me, it's the truth about who God is, about who we are, about how we've fallen short, but about how God has done something to make us right with Him. It's the truth about how we're called to live our lives in response to what God has done. And these, like you'll remember if you followed along in our last series, these are the seven building blocks of the Gospel. There is one God by whom and for whom all things exist. We have separated ourselves from God by our sin. God has provided a solution to our sin in Jesus Christ. Jesus died on a cross and rose from the grave. We are saved by accepting Jesus' sacrifice and repenting of our sins. We are called to follow Jesus with our whole lives. And if we're saved, like we're talking about, we will spend eternity with God. So what this verse is saying, that the faith and the love and the hope, like we've talked about, these truly begin... These truly start in our lives when we accept and believe and embrace and live in light of the gospel. The gospel is everything. And when I talk about living in light of, you probably know what that means, but I'm talking about a cause and effect relationship. So here's just uh, another example. Right now, hopefully, you are living in light of COVID. If you're not, we probably need to have a talk. Now, living in light of COVID would mean you are physically distancing probably. You are washing your hands more often. Maybe you're wearing a mask when you go to the store. Uh, living in light of COVID is not just saying, oh yeah, COVID, that's a thing. Oh well, back to my regular routine. Well, that's not living in light of it. That's not really anything. In fact, that's kind of alarming. Uh, another example while I'm on the subject, I live in light of my love for the Toronto Maple Leafs. I can hear the chuckles already. My, the Toronto Maple Leafs. So because I like the Leafs, I watched or watched when they were on some of their games. I bought a Matt Sundin jersey. I have a couple of ball hats and t-shirts. I know some of the players. Well, not personally, but I know their names. And I endure scorn from non-Leafs fans on a regular basis. If I was to say I like the Leafs, but I don't ever pay attention to the Leafs or watch any of their games or know any of the players or follow them at all or, or cheer for them at all, can I really say that I'm a fan of the Leafs? Probably not, not really. And the same is true for the gospel. To live in light of the gospel means not only to believe it in my heart and in my mind, but to actually live my life in step with the gospel in my everyday life. Verse 6, we talked about the gospel, the word of truth, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. That's what the gospel does. It bears fruit and it increases. It always has and it always will. Now, when we look around at sort of the religious landscape, if you will, of our region or our country, even say North America, we might look around and say, well, it seems like the gospel is kind of becoming less of a thing. It seems like um, Christianity's kind of dwindling. And, you know, we used to at least have a culture that was sort of Christian. Like, I'm not even that old, and I can remember, for instance, when there was no Sunday shopping, when that was just becoming a thing. Anyway, um, and, and so you might look around and say, okay, yes, and churches are, are shrinking and dwindling and closing, and people don't pay any regard to God. A lot of people don't even believe there is a God anymore. And you might kind of sink into despair and say, man, the gospel is, is toast over here. The gospel's really gone downhill. 
What I would point out to you though is that in some parts of the world, like right now as we're speaking, uh, places like South America and Africa and, and certain parts of Asia, the gospel is actually spreading like wildfire and it's growing rapidly and many people are coming to know the Lord and get saved through that. So that's awesome. Praise the Lord for that. And even though we are maybe in a bit of a lull gospel-wise over here, somebody's watching me in their car up the road. This is funny. Even though, even though we may be in a bit of a gospel sort of lull, uh, it may seem that way in this part of the world. I want to remind and encourage you that the gospel will never, 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 never be extinguished. That doesn't absolve us of our responsibility to share it and spread it and live by it, but it's not going anywhere. It's the word of truth. And God says in Isaiah 55, 11, about the word that goes forth from his mouth, he says, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So friends, we need to be a praying people. We need to be asking God that the gospel would flood like a tidal wave in our city and in our midst and in our church and in our families that through the gospel and through people hearing that word of truth lives would be changed and our streets and our neighborhoods and our families and our homes and even our own lives would be utterly transformed by the gospel don't you want that god we want to see that god let your kingdom come and your will be done let the gospel come and bear fruit among us god we're asking that you do this work start with me start with us god yes lord the gospel comes, it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it. So there it is, friends. The gospel is not only some external, out there thing. The gospel bears fruit in us. The ministry of the gospel, the work that the gospel does is to lead us to Jesus so that we can not only have our sins forgiven in him, but enter into a relationship with him and by his power and his presence, start to bear fruit in him. It says in John 15 that, that God is glorified, that we bear much fruit in him. And I've said it over and over and over, but I will say it again. The gospel is not only applicable at your salvation. The gospel is not the spiritual training wheels that you, you, know, you put on your bike to steady you. And then when you're stable, you throw the training wheels away and you move on from them. That's not what the gospel is like at all. You don't just accept it for, being, uh, for getting saved, excuse me, and then throw it away. It bears fruit among us as we continue in it our whole lives long. When we submit ourselves unto the Lord and live in light of the gospel, we start to see these virtues of faith and hope and love start to well up in us. We start to see all kinds of other things like, what about something like the fruit of the Spirit? That starts to be cultivated in us. I'm gonna to try to remember all the fruit of the Spirit right here, there's nine of them. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Did it. Anyway, like, I want those in my life. I want those for your life. And there's that and, and much more begins to, to be cultivated in us when we abide in the gospel. So from the day we heard it until now, we start to see our lives changing, our attitudes changing, the way we see and treat other people changing. Life is totally different when we marinate in the gospel, friends. When we focus on Jesus, when we trust in Him for our salvation, when we put Him first and truly seek Him, when we allow Him to sit on the throne of our hearts and be in first position, good fruit will grow in our lives. Good fruit simply will grow. 
We'll continue in our text. Since the day you, uh, you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So that's the age-old paradox you see in Scripture, grace and truth. Now, grace and truth are not opposed to each other, but they work in tandem together. And when the balance between the two is properly understood and applied, it leads to flourishing. It leads to the bearing of fruit in our lives. And so the truth, now the truth can sometimes be hard to hear, but it's good. The truth is that we have sinned. We are all sinners and we have separated ourselves from God. We have separated ourselves from the life of joy and peace and blessing and closeness to God that we were designed and created to have. And in its place we have subjected ourselves to death and condemnation and wrath. But the truth of God's grace is that even in spite of all of that, God makes an offer to you and to me to totally, completely, and utterly bring us out of that and forgive us and heal us and restore us and save us. On the one hand, listen, as Christians, like we've experienced this, on the one hand, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but by God's grace, He has made us alive with Christ. On the one hand, we were living in and destined for eternal darkness, but God has transplanted us as believers into new life and new light. And on the one hand, God calls us to a life of righteousness and holiness and, and a life that's pleasing to Him. But we understand that it's only by His grace that we can actually achieve that and work toward that. It's only by His grace that we stand. It's only by His grace that we can have confidence to step into the life that He has for us. So if you want to bear fruit for God, my friends, you need to know the gospel and live by the gospel in grace and truth. If you are heavy on the truth side, but light on the grace side, you risk slipping into legalism. This is where life becomes all about the rules and you start whacking people over the head with your Bible. And you set up, um, you set up, you, you put weight on people, maybe even on yourself, that's impossible to bear. And that is an extreme that God doesn't want. Because in that life, there's no vitality, there's no joy, peace, freedom, any of that. It's miserable. On the other extreme, if you're too heavy on the grace and, and a little bit lighter in the truth, you can risk slipping into liberalism. This is where anything goes and sin doesn't matter and God just wants me to be happy and do whatever I want. Well, that's also not what God wants. There's no wisdom there. There's no grounding. There's, no, uh, there's, a, there's a potential for a lack of, of righteousness there and that can lead to harm and, and hurt the same way the other extreme can. So. The idea, though, is to exercise a good balance of truth and grace. That's the sweet spot. And, and when we do that, it leads to a life of flourishing and bearing fruit in Christ. So that is the ministry of the gospel. That's the work that it does. It comes and it bears fruit and increases among us. We're going to finish up here with the last couple verses in our text. Let's read verses 7 and 8 now of Colossians chapter 1. And in this, we're going to see the ministry of the Spirit. It says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So this guy Epaphras is worth talking about quickly. It says here that the folks at Colossae learned the gospel from Epaphras. 
it seems to paint the picture that he is responsible for planting or helping to plant this church. And he's in a position maybe that's like a pastoral one with these Christians. Remember we said earlier, Paul likely didn't plant this church. What's believed that happened was Paul was doing his thing, preaching the gospel in other places, other cities and towns. And, and Epaphras traveled and heard the gospel from Paul in one of those other places, maybe Ephesus. And Epaphras accepted it and met Jesus and was changed and he was jacked up. And then when he went home, he brought the gospel with him and that's how the church got started. And it says that he, Epaphras, is a faithful minister to Christ on your behalf. He is a beloved fellow servant with guys like Paul. Those words beloved, or uh, fellow servant rather, are from the Greek word sundulos. And the defini definition of the word doulos in there is a slave. So it's kind of intense language. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks as well. But at any rate, this gives the impression that Epaphras lives and breathes this stuff. He is dedicated to serving these Christians in Colossae. He's dedicated to serving the Lord in this way. And it says here that he has made known to Paul and his companions these Christians' love in the Spirit. So I want to just zoom in with the time I have left. We'll take a bite out of this love in the Spirit business. When we become Christians, we receive the Holy Spirit. He is the third member of the Trinity, the three persons of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Holy Spirit dwells within us as Christians. He's always with us. And I don't want to downplay or diminish the Holy Spirit at all because He does all kinds of specific things and it's wonderful. But if I had to generalize and, and kind of just generally say what His role is, it would be this. His role is to point us to Jesus and to empower us to live for Jesus. So He's always working, He's always moving, He's always speaking, always calling, always strengthening. And in all of it, it's all an effort to direct our eyes and direct our hearts and direct our focus back to Jesus. And not only that, but He actually supplies the strength and the encouragement and whatever else we need to actually step forward in faith and follow Jesus. And in talking about the strength that the Spirit gives us to follow Jesus, one of the primary things He does, one of the primary things He strengthens and empowers us to do is to love better. To love more deeply and more genuinely. A large part of following Jesus is that we grow in our love. That's hugely important. Romans 5.5 5 says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And I love that image. The Holy Spirit, that's He's just pouring God's love into us. And when God's love is poured into our hearts, friends, it changes everything. It causes us to love Him more and more and to seek Him more and more and to worship Him and desire Him more and more. And here's the thing, God's love is so incredible, it's so immense, it's so vast, it's so overwhelming that it starts to overflow in us. It's like the Holy Spirit doesn't really know when to stop pouring, you know what I'm saying? And it can't be contained in this vessel. There's so much of it, it can't help but spill out over the edge of the cup, so to speak. It can't help but well up in you and then come flooding out. Now all of a sudden, again, when we're growing in Christ, we're, we're not only just existing, but we're overflowing and running over with the love and thankfulness and worship of God. It's amazing. Now, what happens in that kind of scenario is the love of God is spilling out from us and it is affecting those around us. 
It's affecting the people who we are near in our lives. And it affects the way we speak and act and treat others. It, it, when we're overflowing with God's love, we end up speaking words of life to people, not death. We end up being kind to others, loving all uh, and loving them in all kinds of practical ways. We end up helping people with their needs and their struggles and their issues. Like supernaturally, we like have the desire to do that. We end up, when we're overflowing with God's love, we end up being a witness and a testament to the goodness of God to those around us. And my friends, I would ask you, do you not think that the world needs that desperately right now? That is what love in the Spirit looks like at a high level. And I want this for us as a church. And I know that we have it in some degree and in some measure so far. Some of you guys, man, you love intensely. It's amazing. You can tell that God has done a work in you and God is still doing a work in you. And it's causing you to love other people and love the Lord. And it's it's awesome. But I'm saying I want that in increased measure for our church. I, I want more and more of that. And I hope that you want that as well. And if you do, I would entreat you to please pray with me for that, that, that God would cause his love to overflow in us as a church. You want to think things will be different then? You better believe it. Again, this is what happens in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He shows up and by gum, he starts changing everything, especially our love. And I would say this, if you're not a believer, you can have this as well. You can accept Jesus, trust in his sacrifice, in his mercy, and his grace. You can come into relationship with God. You can start to experience the real power of God's love in your life, and your life will never be the same. So, it seems like it's getting windier out here or something, so perhaps this is a good time to start wrapping up. <laughs> I know that we've been around the block here today, um, but I want to just quickly sum up where we've been. A key theme in this text, these opening words of Colossians, has been ministry. We've seen the ministry of Paul, how he is, is serving this church uh, in Colossae and serving the Lord in this way. We've seen the ministry of the gospel. We've seen the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And friends, what I want you to know is that God is after something in us. God is after something in us. He is after us to cling to the gospel, which, as we read, bears fruit in us as we abide in it. And the gospel is all about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He is central. God is after us as well to yield to the work of the Spirit, who, among many other things, causes us to love better. And this, this love better, this happens as a result of the high-level work of the Spirit in our lives, which is to point us to Jesus, and it's to help us live for Jesus. He is central. And in all of this, God is ultimately hoping to see all of this happen in us in the context of a relationship with Him. Friends, that relationship is realized and achieved and entered into through Jesus Christ. He is central. And we're going to go deeper and deeper in the coming weeks into the centrality of Christ. I'm really excited about it. But let this just be an introductory encouragement to you today. Submit your life and your heart to Jesus. If you're not a Christian yet, do that for the first time. Have your sins forgiven through Him. Enter into relationship with Him. If you are already a Christian, great. This is yet another opportunity for us to step in closer. Submit your life and your heart to Him. His gospel will transform your life and His Spirit will, will enter in and usher in a new way of living and loving through us. And like I said, we will never be the same again. 
I want to pray for us and then we'll wrap up before I get swept away here. God, our Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks today for who you are. You are so great and so mighty and so awesome and so good. You are such a good Father, such a good God. We love you, Lord. And thank you so much today for your word, your transforming word, your word of truth, the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you for forgiving us of our sins. Thank you for bringing us into relationship with you. And God, in light of all of this, I want to pray, first of all, for those who might be watching or listening who don't know you yet, God, would you stir in their hearts, cause them to have a desire uh, to be saved, to turn to Jesus. God, for those of us who are saved and are already Christians, I'm praying, God, that we could sink our teeth into this stuff. Lord, I'm praying that we would submit to the work of the gospel in our lives and that out of that, the, the, that fruit would start to, to, to grow and be cultivated in our lives. Lord, we know that the gospel is the best news in the world and it changes us deeply. And Father, I'm asking that you would send your spirit in increasing measure. Holy Spirit, would you cause us to love better, more strongly, more deeply, in increasing, ever-increasing measure. Lord, let that be a hallmark of our church, that we love you and love one another with every fiber of our being. Lord, in all these things, we look to you and we worship you and we say, yes, Lord, we are yours. Thank you for being our God. We pray all these things. God, people say it today. Amen. Thanks a lot. We'll look forward to next week, week number two. Thanks a lot.